Let's go ahead and get into the word. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. And um, we, we mentioned this uh, last week, last couple of weeks, but we've been working through the book of John. Um, I think we made it up through about chapter 5. So we're literally only about like maybe a quarter of the, of the way, our way through the gospel according to John. Um, we had planned on, on taking a break right around this time, the beginning of the new year, to, to take a step back and, well, take a break from John because it's a long book and it's, it's kind of good, I think, to break it up every now and again. Um, but we do want to begin the year. We are beginning the year with a week or five days of prayer, fasting, and consecration. And as Blaine mentioned, it's actually something that we do uh, with, with churches all around the world. Uh, we're actually a part of a whole family of churches called Every Nation. You could say it's our network or our denomination, if you will. Um, and that's what we do. We do it every year. And it's awesome. The, the little booklet that Blaine was sort of waving, um, there's a stack of them on the table back there. If we run out, we have more downstairs. But please do grab one of those on your way out. I, I hate throwing them away. I hate putting them in the recycle bin after the, the beginning of the year. So take one. Just look at it and figure out what it will look like for you to pray and fast and consecrate yourself as a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, for the year. The booklet, it's a devotional but it's also like a little practical tool to think through, like what, what would it look like for you to pray and fast for a week? There's a lot of different ways to fast, um, so that will help you. Um, and it'll also help us as a church to do something together. It's the point of being a part of a community. Um, we're not just kind of coming here to individually sit next to each other and listen to a sermon. We, we are, we're trying to be a community, and when we pray and fast together and have a little a little devotional guide to help us do that, it, it helps us. It's, it's a very simple, practical way of, of fostering unity. We do that together. Um, but think about that. That'll start not tomorrow, but next Monday, the 10th through the 14th. And, um, and that's meant to sort of set us up for the year as we all seek the Lord together. Um, in, in, uh, in, along with that, we're going to then go through a mini-series called Abide. So this is all tying back to why we're taking a break from John. We're going to take six weeks and look specifically at abiding in the Word. Abiding in Jesus who is the Word who became flesh. We're going to look at like, the importance of Scripture. How reading, meditating upon, submitting to centering our life around Jesus as he has been revealed to us in God's word is key, is crucial for us to, to be healthy and, and, and to, to flourish and to, and to grow and to make sure that we're being anchored in Jesus as his body. Um, it just so happens that, that those six weeks that we'll be looking at what it looks like to abide in God's word will all be coming from the book of John. Every nation our church family that we're a part of, the, the leaders of every nation, they decided months ago that we were gonna focus on this, this concept of abiding, and they apparently decided we'll just 
We'll just look at the book of John to do this. So so it's a weird thing how it worked out. We had decided to go through the book of John. Every nation, our church family, decided to also go through the book of John. So we'll be taking a break from John, but not taking a break from John. Okay, so I don't know if that helps anyone, but in my mind, like, I really need to connect all of the dots. Um, That's that's what we're doing, and that's how we got there. You guys with me? Okay. Second Corinthians chapter eight. Let's go there. Beginning in verse one. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected or beyond our expectations, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment, this benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, would you help us now? Would you be our teacher? Would you help me as I Teach your word? Would you give us hearts that are open and receptive to the things that you want to say to us as individuals and as a church family this morning? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I've actually titled my sermon this morning. I rarely do that, but um, the title of my message is Reenacting Grace. The context of the passage that we just read, um, I guess you could say the context of the whole letter itself is uh, Paul writing to a church in Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth, and he's saying, hey, you guys are doing great. His first letter, 1 Corinthians, slightly different tone. You guys are blowing it. You You guys need to repent. You guys got major issues, you're sinning, Um, you're selfish, you're lacking love, you're really good at doing all the spiritual things and amassing knowledge, but you're completely lacking the love, i.e. you've lost the plot. 
Um, it's a pretty severe letter. This letter, he commends them. Uh, he still challenges them in a variety of ways, but he's like, look, you guys are doing awesome. You've responded so well. I'm so glad that my previous letter, um, all, although it caused you to, to feel grief, it was a grief that led to repentance. And that's, that's great. What a gift. What a gift when, when we're not just shamed into changing our behavior, but when the Holy Spirit convicts us in a way that's actually healthy, when we're... we're when we're enabled to see how God wants to change us. And that, of course, results in all sorts of um, different behavior. But Paul's committing them. He's saying, you guys are doing great. You're growing in knowledge. You're growing in faith. You're growing in love. You're growing in earnestness. And I want you to excel in this act of grace also. I want you to grow in generosity. So that's the context. I want you... I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given to the churches in Macedonia, is how he begins this portion of the letter. I want to tell you about the grace of God that's being given to the churches in Philippi, in Thessalonica, and in Berea. Those would have been the three churches that Paul, Timothy, and Silas planted in the region of Macedonia. I want you guys to know in Corinth about the grace of God at work in these other churches uh, just like you. It's amazing. Um, I would like you guys to know about the grace of God that is working in our church in the lives of people perhaps sitting right next to you. I want us to all be aware of the fact that God's grace is alive and well in his church, in the world. My life is being changed in some really wonderful, hard, good, challenging, emotional, joy-filled ways. And in our church, one of the great privileges of getting to be a pastor is I hear a lot of stories. Some of them are really hard to hear, and I'm like, man, I do not want to hear this story. This is, this is depressing. Just repent. Just stop it. Just stop it. But a lot of the stories are like, wow, the, the grace of God is real. God's not done working in the world. He's not done in Grace City. Um, the past year, and how we reflect towards like the end of the year and the beginning of another, this, this past month or so, I've been reflecting on the past year. And I'm just so grateful for how God has not stopped working in our church family. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that, that, that we're here, that God has started something. We call it Grace City. I think God just calls it my family that he's clearly not done with. And I get to hear stories over and over and over of how God is healing people, setting people free, changing hearts, occasionally even getting to to hear about or even witness up close someone realizing that I am lost, I am broken, I, I I have no answers, I'm without hope, I need Jesus, and they turn away from the things that they used to be finding or trying to find hope or meaning in and they turn to Jesus. That's called repentance and salvation. It's what the grace of God does. 
in a human life. It's amazing, and God keeps doing it over and over and over again. I want us to be aware, I want you to be aware of the grace of God that is being given to the church, in our church, and in people's lives all around us. In this particular story of God's grace, it's being given in quite a, an astounding fashion. God's giving his grace to the churches of Macedonia. How is, how is he doing this? What does this look like? Well, he says that in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. How about that? How about that for the grace of God at work in a, in a church, in the life of a church family? Extreme joy plus poverty equals generosity. That's what the grace of God does. How wonderfully bizarre is that? The clarion call of Christ is in this world you will have trouble, i.e. poverty, perhaps of all sorts and kinds. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Life is hard, but our champion has overcome the world. Death is real, pain is real, Brokenness is real, poverty is real, disappointment is real, temptation is real, all the hard things in life are real and mustn't be marginalized but spoken about plainly and our God has overcome the world. He has faced death down the barrel and he said do your worst and he overcame in this life and offers us new life. And a chance to experience, to participate in the work that he's doing, his grace at work in the world, in this life and in the life to come. That's unreal. Jesus said to Paul, who wrote this letter, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. Somehow generosity happens despite poverty. Someone uh, complimented our church recently, and you're sitting in this room, so forgive me if this was awkward, but I don't, I don't think it's, it's something worth sharing. They complimented our church. They said, one of the things I love about Grace City um, is that the preaching is so, so good. I'm kidding, they didn't say that. (laughs) No one ever says that. Um, They said, the thing I love about Grace City is that there's there's so much like honest vulnerability occasionally in the preaching, Um, just in the community, in the conversations. I don't know if that's everyone's experience. I wish it were, I hope it is. There's so much just like honesty and vulnerability in this church community. And I don't know if they were thinking about maybe other experiences, other churches, I'm not really into comparing, but I think it's a gift. And to be be a community that aspires to actually grow and mature and to like overcome sin and temptation, all these things, and to live lives that actually honor Jesus and his word, and to do that in a way that like shame's not, not running the show. 
We can actually be honest about this is where I'm really at. This is how I'm failing. This is how I'm hurting. Is there hope for me? And to be able to like cultivate, foster that sort of culture of honest vulnerability. I love that. I actually do like that about our church. I receive the compliment. Um, But I think there's a, I don't know if it's a danger or if it's just sort of like a a phenomenon that I've witnessed, that I see over and over. Oftentimes, what starts out as good, honest vulnerability can somehow morph into like um, uh, just plain old cynicism. Like defeatist cynicism, like the, the, the point is, the, the supreme virtue is to simply just be honest and vulnerable in the story. And there's a problem with that. There's actually a big problem with that. Um, because grace doesn't end with vulnerability and empathy. It's the start The grace of God begins with creating safe space for broken people to be honest and vulnerable. The good news is that God does care for and comforts the weak and the broken. He is the God of all compassion and comfort. Jesus identifies with the lowly that we might find our identity in him. He cares for the weak and then commands us to be strong, to embrace our new identity as sons and daughters of the king, to arise in the resurrection power of Messiah, to take up our beds and walk. This is, grace begins with compassion, empathizing with the weak and the broken, which would be all of us. If it's not, we'll pray for you. Get in touch with reality. But it only begins with honest vulnerability. The grace of God meets us where we're at, offers us comfort and compassion, and then Jesus looks at the man who couldn't walk and says, arise, take up your bed and walk. And he gives dignity to the downtrodden. He gives us a new identity. He doesn't merely affirm us in our brokenness. He meets us there. And he says, now follow me. Allow me to demonstrate my power in your weakness. And he gives us new identities. He gives integrity to the broken and the weak. He empowers us to walk, to stand upright, to know who he says we are, to receive his love, to be empowered. And that's the grace of God. Paul put it this way, if we turn back one page. 2 Corinthians 6, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, and calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, 
Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying. And behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. That is the grace of God at work in life. It meets us in our brokenness and says, now you are strong. Be strong in the power of his might. It's good news. Your power, his power is made perfect in our weakness. Grace takes a really painful situation, for example, poverty, adds the presence of God, which often manifests as love, joy, peace, patience, etc., and results in the people around you being enriched simply because you showed up in the power of the Spirit and shared with generosity from a place of weakness, from a place of being loved. That's what the grace of God does in our lives. Meets us in our weakness, manifests as joy, peace, patience, kindness, and then results in people around us being blessed, being enriched simply because we showed up. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of who he is wherever God's kids go. This is the grace of God at work in a world that's broken. This is, I believe, kind of what Jesus meant was in this world you will have trouble. You will experience hard things. You will feel exhausted. You will want to withdraw. You will be tempted to lash out. It will be hard, but take heart. I have overcome the world. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. This is the clarion call of Christ. He has overcome the world. The one who died, who became poor, has conquered death that we might be rich in him. Now, if you're wondering, gosh, like, okay, great, awesome, you're excited. I am excited, dang it. I'm preaching to myself this morning. I really am. Thanks for bearing with me. Thanks for giving me the, the privilege. Life gets so dang hard. And I start to read my Bible, and I'm like, hang on a second. Hang on a second. Is this just theory? Is this just a concept? Something that I can kind of journal about, maybe sort of have a little, little feeling for a moment? Or is this the grace of God? Is this the stuff that I signed up for? Is this, what, is this what it means to follow Jesus, to live life in the wake of his victory? And we live, sorry, I was gonna apologize for preaching, but I'm not, because I am preaching. Sorry for sounding so preachy, but let me just say it. 
we live in a world that makes um, honesty slash vulnerability slash cynicism as like the supreme virtue. And then when you start hearing someone talking about, oh, we've got to overcome, we're more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Oh, that's hype. That's just religious jargon. Get in touch with reality. Save it for someone who cares. And I say poo-poo to you. When Jesus saved me, he met me in, the, in a pit of just gross sin, addiction, bondage, porn, weed, drugs, chasing this, that, and the other, only to be left hopeless over and over and over again. And then Jesus met me in a moment. He said, I can save you. I can give you a chance to start over. I can tell you who you were really born to be. Let me redefine you. If you'll you'll let me, if you'll open your heart, I'll begin to pour my grace into you. I'll teach you how to live life as a loved son, son of the king. And it changed me. The grace of God began to work itself out in my life. And then time went on. You know what? I realized there's a whole book in the New Testament about this. It's Paul's letter to the book in Galatia, the Galatians. We tend to start out in grace, empowered by the Spirit, experiencing His power in our weakness, but then over time, we begin to forget, we begin to drift, and we we think like, okay, now I did the grace thing, but now I just need to master all of the principles and I can begin to apply these things in my life. And that's not a bad thing per se, but we don't ever graduate from grace. Because if we do, if we think grace is just the thing that got me in and now I'm trying to perfect it all in my wisdom and my ability to master the religious rites, then I, I relapse or I lapse back into this old way that I'm going to figure it out. I'm gonna muster the energy. I'm going to crack the code and solve all of my problems. And God wants to bring us back to the fundamental wonder, the gift of his grace. Now, concerning generosity, it says in verse 3, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So grace working out looks like generosity. Now, if you kind of figured it out, or if you maybe figure it out later, when you go back and read the whole context of this letter, he's actually talking about money. I don't wanna talk just about money. I said a few things about money when I first came up here. Generosity is so much more than just about money. You can give money and not be a generous person. It's really a matter of the heart. So I wanna just make that clear, the immediate application here is actually Paul saying, hey, about the the money you'd promised for the relief of the saints in Judea, um, I'm sending Titus, he's gonna collect it. Sounds a little gangster to me, but like, (laughs) send in the guy, have the money ready. (laughs) 
I love, I love how the New Testament is so frank. It's so frank, so refreshing. But the generosity is not just about money. Generosity is an act of grace. Two times in the passage we just read, Paul refers to generosity as a quote-unquote act of grace. He said they gave according to their means and beyond. The kind of generosity that extends beyond convenience. This act of grace is the kind of generosity that goes beyond comfort and begs for an opportunity to bless others. Generosity is an act of grace. Generosity is also the evidence of grace. In verse five, it says that they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Generosity is the practical outworking of a life surrendered to God. Generosity is actually a matter of obedience. Now, here's a challenging thing. Um, If you struggle with generosity, money, time, affection, um, your attitude, the way you see the world around you, if, if in life you find yourself naturally wanting to sort of like um, preserve or let's say conserve uh, your resources, your way of life, your boundaries, as opposed to desperately, eagerly looking for an opportunity to bless others, you don't have a generosity problem. I would suggest maybe, forgive me if this is offensive, I would suggest you have a grace problem. You have a grace problem. The Bible speaks plainly about evaluating like the state of your heart. Like where are you really at? We don't need to play games. No one needs to hide. No one needs to pretend. No one has time for that. Just where are you at? Where is your heart? Are you begging for an opportunity to serve? To bless others? Or are you usually just trying to like figure out ways to like, like let, let me see if I can just create some distance between me and the needy church that's always wanting more from me or those people that are constantly trying to get more of my affection. This is where I'm at. This is, this is one of the reasons why I thought this, if, if no one else needs this, I need it. So I'm going to preach. I'm going to preach it and hopefully God will use it for someone else. I realized that in the wake of 2020, 2021, I was beginning to like, when, when my phone would go off and I'd get the text or I'd get the call or I'd get the email, like my natural inclination was like, dude, I gotta like, I gotta, these people are like, just need to leave me alone. So needy. So everyone wants my attention. Everyone wants me to respond to their thing. And I had to check my heart. I realized, hang on a second. Last time I checked, this is not Jesus' heart towards me. For sure, there's moments when I need to withdraw and I need to rest. I need to practice self-care because that's actually just a fancy sort of contemporary term for good stewardship. Self-care is being a good steward of my body, of my time, my mental health, my emotional capacity. So I need to withdraw and get with Jesus and practice good stewardship, self-care. But so that I can re-engage 
because I'm desperate for the opportunity to bless others and to be generous with my resources and my time, my affection. I can't wait to get back to it, to give and to share and to be generous because the grace of God is just trying to get out. And so I had, I've been repenting. I've been in the process of repenting, saying, Lord Jesus, help me. I don't want to hide from the people that you have blessed me with the opportunity to serve and to bless. I want to genuinely long for the opportunity to share with others. And so if you can relate to what I'm saying, this is not like a heavy, it's not, I'm not trying to shame you. This is for our benefit. I'm saying if you're struggling the way I've been struggling, uh, repent. You have a grace problem, and God wants to help you. He wants to heal you. Generosity is an act of grace. Generosity is the evidence of grace, and generosity begins with receiving. Verse five says, they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. They gave themselves first to the Lord. Generosity begins with receiving. This is the paradox. There's the wonderful paradox of grace. It says that they first gave themselves to the Lord. I'm saying, which I think is what the Bible is really saying, that generosity actually begins with receiving. Generosity begins with giving everything we have to Jesus first. Let me ask you, what do you have to offer Jesus this morning? What do you got? Empty your pockets. You guys ever been mugged? Empty your pockets. You ever had someone come up and start feeling your pockets? It's not fun. Jesus doesn't want to mug you. God's not trying to get your stuff. What do you have to offer Jesus? Let's see. Let's do a little self-inventory here. Um, I've got my frustration. I've got um, that bitterness issue that's just always there. Um, I've got my shame. I've got my anger. I've got my gifts and talents as well. That's something. Um, I've got my sin. You know, gifts and talents. We have wonderful things that God has given us that he expects us to use for the sake of his, his vision for the world and my life. But when it comes to like giving my gifts and talents, I think of it like taking your kids Christmas shopping. Not shopping for your kids, taking your kids Christmas shopping. I did that this year. We went to Target and I walked around with my kids as they picked out like stuff for my wife and for me. And then we went and I paid for it. <laughs> it's super sweet. <laughs> super sweet. They don't really have any money and the little bit of money they have is the money I gave them. <laughs> Giving ourselves first to the Lord is another way of saying, give all of the stuff Give all of your poverty, give all of your disappointment, give all of your anxiety, give all of your regret, give all of your emptiness 
to the Lord and then receive from him his grace. All of the fullness of who he is. His peace. His love. He became poor that we might become rich. And I'm not talking about money. Although I think money counts as well. It counts as if you're actually living in poverty. I think it counts. Lord Jesus, can you help me in my place of need? So we give ourselves first to the Lord. But what we're giving him is really our empty hands, the lint in our pockets. Giving ourselves first to the Lord is like, it's like bringing an empty bucket to the guy who invented water. I'm giving you my emptiness. Lord Jesus, can you fill me? That's what we're giving to the Lord. We're bringing to Jesus, um, what we're bringing to Jesus is like feeding 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves. Remember that story? Jesus has amassed a crowd. They're listening to his teaching. They realize that this man is different. He's not just another spiritual teacher. If you think that's who Jesus is, you gotta read the Bible, okay? We gotta stop reinventing Jesus. Okay, all we know about Jesus, the most authoritative source for what we know about Jesus is actually found in this ancient text that's been preserved by the power of God for us. This is who Jesus is. When we come to Jesus, it's like his disciples who looked out over the crowd and were overwhelmed with the need. And Jesus says, feed them. Go for it, feed them. Take care of the world. Handle the problem. Serve the masses. And they're like, Jesus, with what exactly? Well, what do you got? Uh, I got the allowance you gave me? I've got these two fish and five loaves. Okay, give it to me. Okay, this is all I've got. It seems like nothing. It's okay, give it to me. And he blesses it. And through his disciples, he begins to feed the masses. This is what giving ourselves to Jesus looks like. It's surrender. It's saying, I can't do anything apart from you. Here are my empty hands. We give Jesus our frailty and he fills us up with surpassing power. Paul uses the same imagery. It's from Jeremiah 18. It's the, it's the potter and the clay vessel. We're frail and he fills us with his surpassing power. Only he does it in a way that it's pretty obvious the powers are not coming from me. It's a power that belongs to him. We give him our not enough and he gives us more than enough to be a conduit of his blessing whatever the circumstances. The hardest part of excelling in generosity, this act of grace, is learning to receive from Jesus. This is the hardest part in the whole process. Learning to be weak and to receive from Jesus. Which brings us 
to Titus. Let me say a couple, couple quick words on Titus. Titus, he was the guy in the, the verses we read who was being sent by Paul to facilitate uh, the giving and receiving of resources. Titus, um, he had his own experience of Jesus. He was eager to serve in his own right. But he was the guy assigned the responsibility. There's those in need. There's those who are currently experiencing lack and poverty. And then there's these other churches, i.e. Corinth. Corinth. Corinth was actually a rich place. It's a, a port town. A lot of, lot, of, lot of money, a lot of trading going on in the city of Corinth. So they had something to give. And Titus was sent to get their riches to those in need. And sometimes, I think the problem in our lives and even in our church community is that we're all sitting in our pews looking forward and no one's actually aware of like, where are you at? Are you aware that there's someone sitting like 10 feet away from you who is dying to experience the grace of God in their life? They came into this place thinking, I don't know, I'll try. I'm not even sure if God exists. What do I got to lose? It's a church, right? Maybe I can find hope here. And someone comes here, they sit in a, they sit in a pew, they listen online, and 10 feet away, you've got someone who has so much to offer, so much hope, so much joy, so much relational bandwidth. And they don't even know that there's a need like 10 feet away from just across the aisle. And we need more Tituses. Titus was a minister. His role, his gift, the way he was serving, he was the, um, he was the blessing bar, uh, broker. I'm using the term right. He was make, excuse me, making sure that the people in need were receiving from the people who were eager to share. And we need way, way more of that in our churches. Oh, but it's hard to receive. It's hard to be the one like, okay, I, maybe, maybe I'm here, maybe my reason for being here is so that you rich people have an opportunity to actually share what God has given to you, entrusted to you as a stewardship. Oh, and don't you just love being the, the guy with all the problems? Don't you love being the one with all the issues? The one who can't pay their rent, the one who's always sobbing about something, the one, who, the one who's always struggling with their emotions, who's constantly weighed down by shame. Don't you love being that guy? Wait, raise your hand if you love being the basket case in church. No, no one? Of course not. No one wants to be that guy. But there's a lot of you in here, and we need you, because everyone gets a turn. Everyone gets a turn. There is no generosity without need. And sometimes some of us needs to be the Titus. It's like, okay, talk to me. Talk to me. Where are you at? What is your need? No, 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 no. Tell me where you're really at. What's really going on? I know you don't know me. I don't care. Let's get to know each other. Now talk to me. Where are you at? How are you hurting? Where are you disappointed? What do you need? Now maybe I can meet that need. Maybe. Maybe I can. 
When grace is really at work in a person's life, there's like an urgency, a desperation, like I can meet the need, I can do it, I've got some money, I've got time, I'm willing to actually give beyond my means, because the grace of God is more than enough. Or maybe, you're like, look, I can't help you. I, in fact, I, have, I don't even know what you're talking about. Your issue is like so outside of my, my, my realm of experience, but I can connect you with someone. Dude, let me introduce you to Dave. Let me introduce you to Raquel. Let me introduce you to Matthew. Let me introduce you to Noah. I know who you need to know. That I'm, there's someone that I've got to introduce you to. He's, he's, a, he's a quirky fellow, but you need to meet Ken. We love you, Ken. And the Titus is at work making sure that no one leaves without experiencing the grace of God. It's called being a minister. The church needs more ministers. The old school term is priest. We need priests. We need conduits of God's grace. People who can say, and this is why actually in the new year, um, Regan, John and Regan Reichel aren't here this morning, but Regan Reichel has officially taken on the responsibility of, of building and leading our pastoral ministry team. We realize that as a church, we're not great at, at intentionally making sure that the needs of our people are being met. Like occasionally we get lucky and we kind of hear or, or maybe someone's like embedded enough in relationships that they can get their needs met. It could be emotional, it could be financial. And because they're connected, they get their need met. But it feels like we're just rolling the dice. Occasionally, oftentimes, I hate to admit it, I'll hear about someone who's like, yeah, I left the church months ago because honestly, like, like I needed help. I had, I had needs. And I kept showing up, I kept, but I just, I couldn't figure out how to crack the code. I, I, I was just leaving as hopeless as I came with. And that breaks my heart as a pastor. I'm like, no, 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 we must excel in this act of grace. We have to get better. So Regan, after she prayed a couple months about it, we had several conversations. She's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. I feel like God is calling me because she's very, very compassionate that she's one of the people, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying all this, but she's a leader in our church. She's one of the people who gets really upset when she sees the legitimate needs of a person in our church not being met. I'm like, okay, well, help us. Help us. Let's build a team. Let's work on that. We need more Tituses, making sure that people who have something to share are being given the opportunities to bless people um, who are living in poverty, emotional, financial, or otherwise. So, can I invite the worship team to come up, please? I should say Jessica and Hillary, our wonderful, amazing worship team. Where are you at with grace and generosity? So this is our beginning of the year message. Next week, we're going to start preaching through our Abide series. It's going to be awesome. But I wanted to, this is what I felt like God put on my heart for us for this morning, to sort of set us on a trajectory for the year. 
I want us to excel in this, this act of grace. Learning how to give and receive God's love through each other. Could be money, but it's, it's way, way bigger than that. Generosity. The grace of God at work in a community where people can come together and participate in giving and receiving love. Where are you at? Paul challenges the Corinthians. He says, it's great that you, you had intentions. He said, I'd like, you, I'd like to see you match your desire with action. So I'm sending Titus to, uh, to facilitate that. I know a lot of us, I can just, just look up and down the aisle here and imagine who's with us online. I'm like, oh my goodness, I know your heart. I know that you desire to live this way. I have no doubt. And just like me, sometimes you really struggle to actually follow through. Great intentions, all the desire, but you just, it's hard to kind of get moving forward sometimes. And so I want to challenge you. This is for your benefit. This is for our benefit. I want to challenge us as a church. Because let's, let's think of what, what is it going to look like to begin following through on some of this stuff so that it's not just ideas, things that we read about or complain about. It's something that we're actively pursuing, that we're engaging with. Being honest with me, am I a generous person or am I beginning to withdraw? Am I beginning to like put up boundaries and calling it quote unquote self-care when really I'm just not being honest about like the state of my heart? Where am I at with grace? When was the last time I came to Jesus, had a Jesus moment and said, oh, Jesus, I am, all I've got to offer you today is my bitterness, my emptiness, my frustration. Lord Jesus, that's not okay. Let's not stop with honest vulnerability. Lord Jesus, help me to walk again. Help me to reclaim who you say I am, that I might overcome my bitterness, that I might arise and walk again, that I might rediscover the power of your love at work in my, my heart and my life, that I might get in on the action and begin to fight the good fight, that I might rediscover grace again, that we as a church community can experience grace for a second time, let me, let me stop with this. This is where Paul actually begins the letter. I shared this this morning at our pre-service prayer meeting, all the people who are here serving. Paul begins his letter saying, I wanted to come to you, Corinthians, that you might have a second experience of grace. No one knows what that means. Maybe someone does. I don't know what that means. A second experience of grace? What is that? A second experience of grace. Church, I love you. You're doing so well. You've responded to my challenging letters. You've repented. You've rediscovered love. You're living out grace. Now I want you to experience it all over again. 
I want you to have a new Jesus moment in 2022. I want as, us as a church not just to maintain, not just to hang in there, but I want us to have a second experience of grace. That we might be like conduits of generosity, touching our city, serving people who are experiencing poverty, including us here in this room. There's some of you in this room, I am, I am in poverty emotionally. I am in poverty in my body. I am in poverty relationally. Great, wonderful. You are our, you are our opportunity to practice generosity, to reenact grace. Can we stand together, please? So next week, we're going to, we're going to have five days, starting next Monday, prayer, fasting, consecration, because this is our opportunity, guys. You know why we fast at the beginning of the year? It's a way of coming to Jesus with our empty hands. Jesus, I got nothing. Oh, I'm hungry. I'm literally so, so hungry. Lord Jesus, here I am. I want to experience your grace all over again, and I want you to encourage you with, with everything I've got. Guys, dive in, head first. Grab a little, little devotional booklet and begin to, begin to think about it, pray about it now. Lord Jesus, how can I do this? How can I fast for a week? Can I come here to the building at 6 a.m. every single morning and pray like I've never prayed before? Think about it. As we worship, we're going to end our, our service this morning with communion. The bread represents his body, the juice, his blood. Jesus gave his life so that we might experience his grace. Not just the notion of his grace but the reality of his grace. He became poor that we might be enriched, that we might experience his life. And when we take communion, it's, a, it's, this, it's like a visceral way to actually say, yes, Lord Jesus, I need you. I need you to fill me. I need you to forgive me. I need you to make me new today. And if you would like to do that, if you say yes to that, then I invite you to receive communion this morning. On this side, we have a gluten-free option as well as regular. And then over here is just normal. Whenever you're ready, as we begin to worship together, go ahead and make your way to one of the communion stations. And then we will worship. And then we will end. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your gift. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Amen. Whenever you're ready.